All right, good morning. Uh, we are going to be in Revelation chapter 21 this morning. Revelation 21. We'll read verses 1 to 8, but we'll really be looking at the entire section of chapter uh, 21. Let me just welcome you and say thanks for being here today. So glad to see you. Uh, for all of you that are joining us online, really grateful that you've connected with us in that way. If you need a Bible today, there should be one in the chair in front of you if you don't have one. And while you're getting situated in your, uh, your copy of God's Word or on your app, or whatever you're going to look at the Scriptures with, let me just give you some important news. Uh, we shared with our Bay Area Christian family this uh, Bay Area Christian School family this week, along with the larger Bay Area family by email, um, back just before the beginning of the fourth academic quarter, uh, Jason Nave and I sat down to talk a little bit and he shared with me, he's our head of school at Bay Area Christian School. He shared with me that he had a pretty incredible kingdom opportunity to do Christian education in another state. And I listened to him and I, I said, no, at the end of the <laughs> conversation, like that really doesn't work for me. Let me, uh, let me pray about this and think about this. And uh, we did, we processed that for a little, little bit of time. And uh, Jason and Jaron have served here at Bay Area Christian School and been an integral part of Bay Area Church for nine years. And if you've been around Bay Area Christian School for longer than nine years, you can really see the impact that, that Jason's leadership has had on uh, the school ministry. And we're really, really grateful for that thankful for it. I had to get over myself a little bit and, uh, and ask God, is this a kingdom thing? Is this really what you're doing? Cause it doesn't fit my agenda. And, uh, he aligned my heart with his and, uh, I'm really, really sad to see them go. Jason's like a, a brother, uh, as much as uh, head of school to me and, uh, really will miss him, but excited about what God has in store for the kingdom's sake, both uh, where they are going and where uh, where God will lead us. And so Jason is over there in a white shirt. I told him I wasn't going to call him this, but he is a dirty dog. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's going to they're going to be here through uh, June. And so we'll have a time to celebrate them and to say goodbye. So I'm not going to drag them up on stage. But I wanted you to know uh, that information uh, as we move forward, because it is such an integral ministry to our church, Bay Area Christian School. All right. Stand with me, if you will. And we're going to read Revelation chapter 21, 1 to 8. If you're our guest, we say this phrase, the very words at the end of the main text reading, just to distinguish God's word from uh, my own. So here's what the scripture says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every, away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. 
also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You may be seated. Today we are going to talk about making all things new. And let me just give you hope if you found your self in Revelation 21, 8, in that list, uh, there is hope. And we all have been on that list. That's not an exhaustive list. That's framework that says nothing sinful will be uh, in the new Jerusalem at that time because Jesus is making all things new. Can you think of a time when you experienced maybe in your life something that seemed like really brand new? I don't mean like you got a new car or you got a new car to you, like you're the used car crowd like like me, and it, it was new to you, it, it, you know, and, and when you got that car, like two weeks later, somebody slammed into the back of your car and it was no longer new. It deterior, deteriorates, right? I don't really mean like that. I mean, more like, like you got married and everything changed and it was brand new or you, you had a child or you adopted a child and everything changed. It was brand new. And, and, and it really did change how you lived, walked, and worked, and all those kinds of things. Maybe you moved to a different city, and even just your surroundings were brand new. Well, even that is feeble, is a feeble illustration to try to relate to what Jesus is doing when he is making all things new. And that's what I want to look about in de- look at in detail today is what is he doing when he's making all things new and what will that experience be like for us. So, if you're new, if this is your first Sunday at Bay Area Church, we're in the 13th message of 14 messages in the book of Revelation. So, you missed pretty much everything uh leading up till right now, but the good news is this message Today is perfect for somebody who missed pretty much everything leading up until right now. The big picture is the book of Revelation is a a word from Jesus given to John the disciple. It's a revealing of what is going to happen. And it breaks down in about three parts. The first part of it is, seven, is letters to seven churches in biblical Asia Minor telling these churches how they should be in the context of their own ministry area. The second part is uh, what I would call the new exodus. It's all about how God will in the future bring his people out of bondage and brokenness that is this world through judgment and then into promise, which is what we get to today, the new city of Jerusalem. And then the last part, which is uh, began last week with Pastor Cade preaching and will, and will end next week, is what I would call the restoration of all things. It's, it's everything has come full circle and been made right, been made 
new. Now, when we jump into Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 7, the first thing we see is past the passing of the first things. So if all things are going to be made new, the old things have to pass away. And that's what we get here. Look at Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So what John is telling us is that the first heaven, that is the present tense heaven, as it is today, this is the place that you, when you die in Christ, you go to be with Jesus. This is the first heaven. The present heaven, it passes away, even as heavenly as it is, it passes away and there is a new heaven. Same thing with the earth, this earth that we live and and experience, it's going to pass away and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. So the old things pass away. It says the sea is no more, which is interesting. The sea, there's a couple of thoughts on that, but the basic idea is that everything from the sea in the book of Revelation is pretty much evil. It's the abyss. It's the entrance to the underworld. It's all of these things. And so that when it says the sea is no more, all the evil things have gone away, have passed away. So the former things have gone. It's the passing of the first things. Uh, Peter in second Peter chapter three, verse 10 to 13 also says, this is going to happen. It says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then The heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for the hastening and the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So the former things pass away. And in light of that, Peter is saying we should live holy and godly lives because we are waiting a new heaven and a new earth, a new uh, reality where everything has been made new and righteousness dwells. Now, verses two to four talk to us about the coming of new things. Take a look at it in verse two. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, I don't, I can't begin to to explain to you how a new city is coming down from God. But what we know is that a new city is coming down from God. It's from him. He has prepared it. He has designed it. It is what is best for our next season as he's making all things new. And this will be a new Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the old Jerusalem, it gets its name, Yerushalayim, which is city of peace, city of shalom. And it's not. If you go to the new Jerusalem today, it is not shalomi. It is actually chaotic. Um, but there will be a new city of Jerusalem that will be perfect peace and it will come down from God. Verse three says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself 
will be with them as their God. So not only will there be a new Jerusalem, but there will be a new community with God. And this is the focal, the best part about the new city of Jerusalem. It is as things are as they were prior to the entrance of sin in the Garden of Eden. People will walk with God and he will be their God and they will be his people. It will be in a physical presence sort of way with God. Right now we have the Holy Spirit leading inside, living inside of us if we're followers of Jesus. This is God's presence with us. But that day will be a different. It will be a closeness with God uh, that, is, that is intense and tangible. Uh, and this new community is uh, with God is the focus of all of it. When it says that they were, they were dwell, they will be dwelling with God and he will dwell with him. This is a word that comes from the word tabernacle. So it's like he will be tabernacling with them. And for John, a Jewish disciple of Jesus, it reminds him of his history of the heritage of Israel and the time when God in the wilderness tabernacled with them and they camped around the tabernacle and his presence was there and he led them through the wilderness a pillar of fire at night and a a cloud of smoke during the day that his presence was visible and tangible that new community with god that is the best thing of all of this now it goes on to say because of that new, new community with god we will experience god's compassion in verses in verse four it says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. It also says in verse five, and he who was seated on the throne said, uh, behold, I am making all things new. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I want you to think about this for just a minute, because when I, I think about it, it causes uh, hope and longing to well up inside of me. When I think about a day where I'm in a new city of Jerusalem because of Jesus, I'm in a new city of Jerusalem and there is no more tears, no more crying, no more pain anymore, no more death for the former things have passed away. We don't know what it's like to live in an environment with no more pain, no more crying, no more death anymore no impact of sin we don't know what it's like to live in in an environment without sin and all the brokenness that comes with it i mean we know our environment is broken when we think about it i only have to look at my own heart to know sin exists but when beyond that i experience it in my family the impact of sin we experience it in our church the impact of sin we experience it in community the impact of sin and globally you can see the impacts of sin raging across the globe we don't know what it's like we we can't even imagine what it's like to live in a world that is not impacted by sin where there's no more brokenness no more death no more grief no more depression no more no more anxiety all of that is is taken away because because there's no sin Everything has been made new. And when I think about that in my life, it causes hope to well up inside of me, knowing that that day is coming, that God has been telling us a story from the very beginning of the book of Genesis all the way through Revelation, that he is a God who is with us. 
You know, he was with them in the garden and then sin happened. Then he didn't abandon them in the wilderness, but he was with them in the wilderness. And then we see him tabernacling with the people in the wilderness. We see his presence in the temple with the people in Jerusalem after they come into the promised land. Then we see his presence on earth as Jesus, the Messiah, walking the planet. And when Jesus ascends to the right hand of the the Father, he sends his Holy Spirit. And now his Holy Spirit dwells inside the people of Jesus all around the planet. He's always a God with us. And in this day, as he makes all things new, he will be with us in a way that is tangible and there will be nothing to separate us. No, no curtain that keeps us out of God's presence because because it's a perfect day and a, a new day. So we have the coming of new things, new Jerusalem, new community with God, new way of life, a new day when God is with us. And that brings me to so much, it brings me so much hope. I want to know like on whose authority will this occur and why can I hope in it? Why can I hope for it? Is this a figment of somebody's imagination or is this true and I can hope for it? Well, here's what John answers that question in verses five and six. Uh, He says this concerning authority and why we should hope. Verse five, it says, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. So what we get is that it's, it's the one who has positional authority who is making all things new. He's seated on the throne, not like a throne, not a throne of a particular people group or a particular nation or country or, or even conquered people like Rome in that, in that days, not, he's not sitting on a throne. He's sitting on the throne. He has positional authority. And when he says he is making all things new, he has the authority in fact, to make all things new new and he goes on here to say that he is in fact making all things new not only does he have positional authority but he has creative authority so there's not one of us in this room no matter how smart we are we have some nasa smart people in here we have some stem people in here like medical people in here that are super smart they they cannot create something out of nothing only God can do that. We learned this, this, uh, this phrase in seminary. It's ex nihilo. It means out of nothing. He's already proven he can do it. He spoke the world into existence. So in this day, he has creative authority to make all things new. And that's what he is doing. So he has uh, positional authority, his creative authority. You know, we trust this creative authority with our own uh, salvation. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We say, like, save me from my sins, Lord Jesus. I believe your death on the cross paid the penalty for my sins. I believe your resurrection shows you have the power to overcome sin and death. And you had a new life, a new body. You ascended to the right hand of heaven. You said you're coming back again. And I believe that you've created me new as I've come to you in humility for salvation. We trust him for that. If we trust him for that, We can trust his creative authority for all of these things that are written in Revelation chapter 21. Now, it goes on to say 
in verse uh, five, these words are trustworthy and true. So not only does he have, you know, positional authority and creative authority, but he has uh, the authority of truth. He is the source of all truth. And, and this phrase, these words are trustworthy and true means these, these things are not just true. They're true, true. (laughs) They're very true. They're doubly true because of who is saying them, because who, who the source of truth is. Is. Now, we see this phrase repeated several times in Scripture. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, it says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. It is true, true, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. So we believe it's trustworthy and true that Jesus died on a cross to save us from our sins. We know that we're the foremost sinners, that none of us could stand apart from Christ before God and not be judged because he's perfectly holy and we are perfectly not apart from Christ. Now, if we trust him for our salvation, we can trust him in the same way to make all things new because he is trustworthy and true. He's the source of all truth. He's got uh, the, the, the authority of truth. Also, it goes on to say this, verse 6, and he said to me, it is done. I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. It is done, meaning he has the final authority. This is, this is the same words that Jesus uh, uttered on the cross. It is finished. He is, uh, goes on to describe himself as the alpha and the omega, the first and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. It's a phrase used to say, I'm the beginning of it all and I'm the end of it all. It all works through me, for me by me and i have final authority to say it is finished to make the former things pass away and to make all things new finally we see john says that he has grace authority look at uh look at verse um six the back half of it he says to the thirsty i will give from the spring of the water of life without payment I'll give the spring of the water of life without payment. So what do we find? And we find in scripture, Jesus meeting with a woman in Samaria in John chapter four. In John chapter four, he pulls up to a place called Jacob's well in Samaria, which is the place everybody goes to draw water in that particular region. And a woman is there and she's drawing water. And Jesus says, could you give me a drink? She says to him, why are you even asking me? The reason is Jews and Samaritans have no dealings with each other in those times. There's a long story behind that, but that's the reality. And so he says uh, to her, uh, if you knew who you were asking, you would ask me for a drink and I would give you water and you would never thirst again. And she says to him, give me this water to drink so I don't have to walk from my house to this well and get water every day anymore. Give me this living water, this water that I I never have to thirst again. And Jesus says, I will go get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. You don't have a husband. You have five husbands and the, the one you're with now is not your husband. And he just like exposes our heart. And, and you know, that conviction, that's what Jesus in a compassionate way does with all of us. The only reason we come to him is the Holy spirit reveals to us our sin and we're drawn to him. Don't be hard on the woman. Every one of us has some story like that, you know? And so she, she, she receives the compassionate love of Jesus 
he somehow we don't have everything but somehow he he tells he he says i am he 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 lets her know he's the messiah she he tells her everything about her and she's amazed and john gives us this little details that she leaves behind her water jar you know why she came there to begin with to get to get water she left it behind and went and ran to her village to tell everybody about the uh, messiah he changed her life what happened she drank from the spring of living water and she didn't need her water jar anymore. And so it says later in that John chapter four, that a lot of people in the town were coming to know Jesus because of the woman's testimony, because of her story, because she drank living water. It changed everything about her. She drank from the spring of the water of life. She didn't deserve that, but by grace, he offered it to her. John chapter seven, John chapter seven, Jesus shows up in the, uh, Jerusalem at the temple for a festival that's commanded in the book of Leviticus called Sukkot or the festival of tabernacles. And at that festival, everybody is there. The the population comes to Jerusalem for that. And uh, they're begging God for rain. Give us rain so we can have economy. They're an agricultural society. No rain, no crops, no crops, no economy. Everybody's crying out in a loud voice. Give us this living water. And it says in John chapter 7, verse 37 and 38, that Jesus stood up and cried out in a loud voice. If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of him will flow rivers of living water. And it goes on to say, he said this about the spirit who had not yet come, but who we would receive if we believed in jesus right he is the source of living water and here in revelation chapter 21 it's by grace that he offers to the thirsty he says to the thirsty i will give from the spring of the water of life without payment i will just say to every one of us who have come to christ and received salvation in him you drank from the spring of the water of life without payment you couldn't save yourself from your sin and the effect of it. He offered it to you, just like he offered it to the woman at the well. He has the authority of grace, and it's that grace authority that allows uh, people like you and me, followers of Jesus, to come into this day when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Now, verses 7 and 8 tell us there is also a new reality for people. Two realities that I think we should consider. Verse 7, it says, uh, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Now, the one who conquers is the one who believes in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and doesn't waver in life from that belief. I don't mean you never sin after you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the greatest gifts of believing on the Lord, name of the Lord Jesus Christ is being convicted by his Holy Spirit in your sin and being given the opportunity to repent and come back to him quickly. It's not that you never sin. It's that you continue in faith and obedience over time that the trajectory of your life is the fruit of your relationship with jesus that's the one who conquers it says to the one who conquers um the one who conquers will have this heritage this new heaven and i will be his god and he will be my son i don't know about you but i love my kids a lot and this language is filled with the love of God, the father for his sons and daughters in Christ. He he is 
getting ready, we are getting ready to in this chapter to understand what it means when all things are made new and we can be in his very presence as sons and daughters. It's amazing. No hindrance. No hindrance between you and God. Can you imagine no shame before God? No guilt before God? You're not, you're not saved, but also struggling. <laughs> but in fact, you're free and in his presence and accepted as a beloved son or daughter. That's because of Jesus. You did no work to get there. It's because of Jesus. And that is our great, great hope. He's the spring of living water. Now, there is a second reality for people, and that's in verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. When I was a really bad dad, I used to always tell my kids that there's a place in hell for liars right after they, they lied. And I would show them this scripture in the Bible. Look right there, like all liars. And then I would laugh and they would be horrified. And then I would have to back up and it was horrible. But this list is kind of horrifying, right? I mean, when you look at that list, it's kind of horrifying. I mean, maybe there are not too many sorcerers in the room. Maybe one or two. But liars? Sexual Im- Im- sexually immoral? Idolaters, people that put other things before God, any other things before God? I mean, it's not meant to be an exhaust- exhaustive list. It's framework, right? Framework with all these categories. And you can make lists and lists and lists under these. And the reality is we've all been here. We've all been on the list. There's not one that hasn't been on this list. It is only by the grace of Jesus that you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. But there are people who will never be transferred, either because they don't believe or because they don't know. And while that does not seem fair, it is the word of God. And it must drive us in two ways. One, to be passionately in love with Jesus who transferred us by his grace from that list to to being sons and daughters of God and giving us this like inheritance that's hard to imagine. But it also should drive us and love toward our neighbors who may be on this list, who may not know Jesus. I mean, maybe we need to do the woman at the well thing and just offer them the good news of Jesus Sometimes we hold back there and it's not time for that. It's actually time to share that good news, to share the gospel because it says that their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So people outside of Jesus, they are, uh, they die die twice, (laughs) die once in the body. And then there is a second death And, and, and it's separation. It's total separation from God. In the old Jerusalem, there's, there's a imagery here that we should understand. The old Jerusalem, it's surrounded by valleys. It's got one that goes through the middle of the Tyropian Valley and then the Kidron Valley over by the Mount of Olives. And the other side is the Hinnom Valley. And the Hinnom Valley is the deepest valley. 
that Hinnom Valley, in fact, when I take groups there, we've hiked all over, we're tired. When I go down the Hinnom Valley, for some of them, it's their favorite walk because it's full of green grass. You haven't, if you've been there 11 days, you haven't seen green grass anywhere in the summer, but that place is full of green grass. And you go down, down, and down, and there's this beautiful tree, and we lay in the shade under this tree, and it's nice. I haven't let them lay down anywhere. And now they're laying down in the green grass, but you can feel this, smell this faint odor of the sewer. Because everything bad from Jerusalem runs to the bottom of the Hinnom Valley. And I stop them like midway to enjoy the path to hell. Because Hinnom is Gehenna, it's the word used for, for hell. Like, how easy is the path to hell? It's hard to come back up, straight up. We need Jesus to keep us from that path, you know? And we have been rescued, but, but some, some of our friends, our neighbors, our families have not yet believed. Now, the second part of Revelation chapter 21 is all about what the new Jerusalem will be like. What will it be like? And it gives us very specific things, but there are a few things that I just want to point out here. The first is in Revelation chapter 21, verse 11. It says the glory of God will be there and it's represented or illustrated uh, by radiant jewels. Like the glory of God is so radiant in this new city of Jerusalem. It's like all of these radiant jewels. And you could do a, a micro study on all those jewels and learn about the colors and all the, all, there's a ton there, but just know the glory of God will be present there. You won't feel like God is up there somewhere or over there somewhere. He's not hearing me, my prayers, because you're with him and his glory is there and he's radiantly described tangible it says that this this city this new city of jerusalem which by the way is a new city of shalom a perfect peace so the bible starts in the garden of eden paradise and ends in a new garden the garden of peace everything in the middle is chaos until all things are made new this new city of peace this new jerusalem has 12 foundation stones well let's start here it has 12 gates And the 12 gates are guarded by 12 angels and the 12 gates are named for the 12 tribes of Israel. Then it has 12 foundation stones. These are like cornerstones that are upholding the foundation of the city. And they are named for the 12 apostles of the lamb, the 12 disciples from which the gospel went from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. I want to show you a picture to, to illustrate this point. This is like late first century graffiti. Now, you might not know it or not, but archaeologists look hard at graffiti because graffiti tells the story. Um, And when they dig up Houston one day, they'll look at the graffiti. There'll be whole studies on the graffiti of Houston. It'll tell a story. This is graffiti on a column in a place called Laodicea, which is one of the seven churches. And what you'll see there, it's kind of hard to see. You may have to squint a little bit, but right above that big fissure, right above that big crack is a menorah. Do you see the menorah scraped in there? There's a Jewish menorah. And out of the Jewish menorah is springing the cross. 
You see that? There was a day in the late first century, especially in the time of the disciples, and then even, even a little bit later, when it was hard to tell the separations between the Jews and the Christians. They were more like Jews who followed Jesus, the risen Nazarene, who believed he was the son of God, who believed he was the Messiah. The points down the road in history, it became separate. The Jews are over there. The Christians are over there. You know, everybody else is over here. But in that day, what the graffiti is showing us is that this gospel of light springs from the tree of Judaism. And it's true. It's what the Bible says. It is sort of like all grafted together. When things are made new, we get these 12 gates, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 foundation stones, which are the disciples, the apostles of the church of Jesus Christ. It's like that. That's the best illustration I can give you. Nobody comes there but through Jesus. But the 144,000 are like that menorah that came through Jesus. And the, the, the cross is the church grafted in like Romans 9, 10, and 11, which is like all of that we could talk about for four hours. But it's like that. See, it's not the Baptist over here and, you know, it's like that. And so this is what we get when we get the, the walls and the gates and the foundation stones. It says the dimensions are four square. So this new city of Jerusalem looks like a cube, uh, four-dimensional, and it's, like, it's uh, approximately 1,400 miles in every direction, up, um, down, width, length, height, all of it, 1,400 miles. Perfect perfect cube I, I there are a lot of pictures on the internet of this they're all too cheesy to show you it does not do it justice and you'll look there and you'll see later today if you want there's no temple in the city according to this this passage that might have su- surprised john as a jewish follower of jesus why would there be no temple well it says that there's no temple because yahweh the covenant god and the lamb is the temple Now, this cube that is 1,400 miles in every direction is the same shape of the Holy of Holies inside the temple in Jerusalem prior to 70 AD. So what you get is an expanded Holy of Holies when all things are made new. In the original Holy of Holies, one high priest could go in one day a year on Yom Kippur. He had to wash like crazy, make sure he didn't bump into anybody, and then go in there as clean as he possibly could so he wouldn't die in the Lord's presence to make atonement for the sins of people. On this day in the New Jerusalem, it's like the Holy of Holies expanded 1,600, 1,400 miles in every direction, and we have access to God. All of us all the time it says that he is the lamb the 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 lamb is the temple it says there's no sun or moon that the glory of god gives light and the lamp is the lamb so all of our light will come from the radiance of the glory of god that the lamb is like a lamp stand shining the light Nations and kings will walk into the city by the light of Christ. It says that the gates will never be shut because there's no darkness. You know, I, um, some people sleep with their doors unlocked. Anybody want to raise their hand and admit that in public right now? Some people sleep with their doors unlocked. I don't do that. 
Not where, not where I live. I don't sleep with my doors unlocked. I don't sleep with my doors unlocked because there's some, there could be a threat. I don't live in a world where there's no threat. Why would there, why would the gates never be shut in the new Jerusalem? Because there's no more satanic threat anymore. No more sinister threat anymore. No more threat of sin anymore to impact this environment because it's all been dealt with now through judgment and placed in this lake of fire. You can sleep with the doors unlocked, completely secure in the presence of God. Again, just a phenomenal picture of what this will be like. It says that nothing unclean will ever enter it. Not anyone detestable, only those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. And that language around written in the Lamb's book of life is, is like written in the past with permanence. How does your name get written in the Lamb's book of life? I'll address it simply. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's that simple. You come to him in belief and he does the transforming work, transforming your heart, giving you a new heart, putting his spirit inside of you, moving you from kingdom of darkness and all that list of detestable sins to the kingdom of light. He says he puts a, a robe of righteousness on you, not that you earned it, but that he, by his work on the cross, puts this robe of righteousness on you, and your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. The only way into the new Jerusalem is through Jesus. He said, no one comes to the Father except by me. How do we respond to this, right? I mean, that is mind-boggling. How do we respond to this? Well, Peter, I think, said it best in 2 Peter 3, 10 to 13, when he said, what sort of people uh, should we be? How should we live our lives in light of this? We should live in holiness, lives of holiness and obedience, knowing that this isn't all there is, that these things are going to pass away. And everything that I've just talked about, everything will be made new. And never deteriorate because there will be no impact of sin. And so in light of that, we should live with that in mind. Not so short-sighted that we live anything but obedient and holy lives, not out of burden, but out of love because of what Jesus has done for us. Here's the other thing I'd say. It's really true that in a, in a, a room this size with this many people in the room, just in this room. Like if we knew the impacts of sin on people's lives, just in this room, completely and totally, personally, on their family, things that they've done, things that have been done to them. If we knew just the general impact of the environment on each person in their life in the, in here in their lives because of sin, and we, we would be overwhelmed to know the amount of broken things that are represented in this room. Marriages are broken. People have broken relationships with ch- children. People are, are medicating probably with things that, um, like pornography and alcohol and drugs. Like I hate to make lists because, you know, people are like, good, he didn't mention mine. Um, it's not meant to be exhaustive. But you get the picture. 
And so I think to myself, you know, Jesus said he'll never leave us or, or forsake us. He said that he's a good shepherd leading us through this wilderness called life. And I can bring those things to him. If my marriage is broken, I can bring that to him. He is the one that makes all things new. He can restore that. If I'm struggling with an addiction or medicating with something, just medicating pain that I have in my life for whatever reason with something besides uh, just walking in a pure relationship with Jesus and the, the gifts that he gave us like community and worship. If I'm turning other places besides springs of living water, I need to bring that to him and say, look, it's easier for me to drink here than come to you. I'm kind of ashamed. He's got authority of grace. He can make it all new. He can restore all of it. See, some Christians believe after they receive Jesus and they sin again, they they put themselves back in a cage and they say, well, I'll just have to die to be free of this one. Whatever it is. It's not true. That's a lie from Satan. And I'll have to die to be free of this. Trust Jesus for my salvation, but not my freedom. And that's why we don't tell people about Jesus, by the way, because we think I I received Christ. I'm in a cage. It's worse now because I know what's right and what's wrong. He can set you free. He can make all things new, but you have to come to him with it in utter transparency. Just lay it at his feet. And that's what I would call us to today. We are, we are in Christ going to live a glorious future, but there are things about us that we need to invite him to make new. And maybe you just need to lay those things before him today. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes and simply just allow the Lord to speak to you for just a few minutes, a few seconds, and then we'll pray. Jesus, we come to you now and ask you to take the most broken parts of our lives and make them new. Father, we ask you to cause hope to well up inside of us, even as we live in a broken world, knowing that as true as it is that you sent your son to die on a cross to save us from our sins, it is just as true that one day a new Jerusalem will descend from you. You will make all things new. Thank you for letting us through Christ experience that inheritance. Thank you that it is a a certain part of our future in Jesus. I pray for everyone here today, Lord, that maybe does not have a relationship or has not believed yet or trusted yet in you, Jesus, for salvation, for forgiveness. I pray that even now through your word and by your spirit, you would draw them and they would know they can simply use very, very easy words and say, forgive me of my sin and come into my life and be my Lord. I trust you. By your spirit, give them the courage to do that. 
Lord Jesus, we, uh, we long for your return. We long for the day when all things are made new. Until then, as we live these days, God, help us to walk in faith and obedience. As your followers, as your people, we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.